the quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. And since last week, I have completely avoided having any erotic encounters with demons. How about you? Yeah, no, I've I, I've not been big on that front either, to be honest with you. Not even uh, a light kiss. Not even, not even, not not a light ethereal glimpse of anything an icabus or a succubus i can never say it right icabus succubus right i think so i think people do it in different ways i say suck i think i say succubi i don't say it very often that's the problem yeah no don't and i can never remember which one's which which is the the male version of female the 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 succubus is the lady one right okay i Um, got it i got it i did fear like mentioning them it might it might mean that you know Perhaps I was opening the portals to uh, sexy hell, but no, it's been fine. No, no sexy hell, no sexy heaven. No, (laughs) no, no, no. That's just life. (laughs) (laughs) I think, didn't John Lennon write those words? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He couldn't find anything to rhyme with succubus. (laughs) So today, Ben, I wanted to talk about teleportation. I think I know what teleportation is. Teleportation is like, beam me up, Scotty, right? Well, it's very strange that you said that. Well, it's not that strange because it is the first thing you think about, right? Star Trek. Yeah. Um, And that iconic phrase, beam me up, Scotty. But did you know, Ben, in true Mandela Effect style, that exact phrase was never said in the original TV series or films? Um, I didn't know that, no. So... That phrase was never uttered by Captain Kirk. Well, eventually it was uttered by Captain Kirk, but in an audiobook of the novel that William Shatner wrote called Star Trek The Ashes of Eden, but uh. never in the TV series or films. I mean, there were other variations like beam us up mr scott and stuff like that but never <laughs> the more formal version <laughs> yeah the more formal. Yeah. they were so polite in those days um uh, but never beam me up scotty which uh is beside the point but it was an interesting fact i found while i was researching that is pretty good but that is teleportation right that is teleportation yeah you stand on the platform you get beamed down to another planet, beamed back, teleportation. Or you could also, the other one I always think about when I think of teleportation is David Cronenberg's 1986 film, The Fly, with Jeff Goldblum. Oh, yeah, of course. You, yeah. So that was the, that's the movie. I know there wasn't a, 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 an earlier version, I think in the 50s, of that movie, which wasn't so good, but the Cronenberg version of The Fly is really good. Basically, this scientist invents a teleportation device he's only got to the stage where he's got two pods and he can transfer he like stuff from one to the other there's some disastrous things that happen but he finally thinks he's perfected it jumps in teleports from one side to the other but you realize he was actually in the machine with a housefly so his dna gets mixed with that of a housefly with disastrous results hilarity ensues yeah exactly if you've not seen that i've not seen it for years and years and years but i remember when i was growing up it was one of my favorite films i don't know if it's aged well but it's a great it's a great concept at least it is a great concept but i oh i hated it as a kid i thought it was terrifying it is scary um talking of scary I, i guess i was drawn to do this topic this week 
by something that went viral on Twitter. Uh, and I also spotted it in the online edition of ID magazine. So the headline that caught my eye was Lady Gaga can teleport. <laughs> I saw this. <laughs> but but it's, it's not just in space, it's in time with her, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, so the background to this story was last week here in the UK, it was the BAFTA Film Awards, which were held in London. Um, and the article I read, I quote... How did the House of Gucci and Chromatica icon Lady Gaga manage to turn up at that show in London and make it to the Critics' Choice Awards held in Los Angeles literally two hours later? Yes. And people didn't consider the fact that one of them might be on a time delay. It wasn't actually a time delay. It was actually even more sneaky than that. Oh. Um, uh, the writer said that lots of people actually concluded the only logical answer is Lady Gaga is a master of teleportation. <laughs> it's the only logical reason. Only, only logical, because not only did she appear in London and two hours later was in LA, but she was in completely different outfits. Mm. So, you know, I don't know how long it takes Lady Gaga to change outfits, but I would have thought that probably takes two hours, right, with the amount of work that goes in. Yeah. Well, the article goes on to point out that this was not made possible by the teleportation powers of Lady Gaga or some secret technology or even some kind of time difference between LA and London. It's a lot simpler. The LA-based Critic Choice Awards set up a London location so that A-listers who were attending the BAFTAs in London could be seen to attend both events. Ah. It's the magic of telly, basically. Ah, and there's some... A clever old vision mixing. It looks like they're all in one place. Yeah, exactly. Oh, nice. Yeah, good. Oh, I'm disappointed it, now. I, I'm kind of disappointed, but I'm glad we worked it out. I would have thought if Lady Gaga did have time travel abilities, it might have been a bigger news story than it was. So it, it probably <laughs> does make sense. Yes. And if she'd <laughs> invented it as well, that would have been quite something. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> They did start me thinking, are there any other less explainable examples of teleportation phenomena? Now, you've probably seen them, Ben. There are a number of videos on YouTube that claim to show real-life teleportation in action. Yes. You know, there's people being saved as they're about to be run over, all that stuff. Yes. I'm not going to feature any of those. Obviously, we are an audio podcast, so it's quite difficult unless people <laughs> unless people want me to say, now, what happens now is he walks out in front of the road and then this happens. It's like when you accidentally get audio describe on your yeah, yeah, television. Yeah, 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 it would be the worst audio description ever. Uh, the other reason I don't want to do them is because it's pretty tough to work out whether these are examples of real amazing teleportation events or just really clever video editing and amazing special effects, right? There's just no way of There's way, no way of knowing, no, no. I mean, I think I know where I'd lean, but, you know, it's, you know. They do highlight that the stories of teleportation can, let's say, blur the lines between facts and fiction, right? Mm. And that's something we've talked about on the podcast before. Um and I am going to start with a story that we did briefly mention in one of the first podcast episodes that we did on time travel. Oh, yeah. But, I, uh, but I'm going to revisit it because I've done a bit more digging on the story and uh, found some different angles on it and stuff that we didn't discuss originally. And it, it is a good story, so I thought it's worth re- reliving. 
And this example of teleportation uh, does involve time travel, and it's the story of someone called Rudolf Fence. Good name. Yeah, great name. So this incident is said to have taken place one night in New York's Times Square in June of 1950. A man was spotted looking confused and distressed, (laughs) which is, I guess, probably not unusual for Times Square (laughs) late at night, but... (laughs) He did draw attention to himself. It was a 30-year-old man who was wearing Victorian-era clothes, and you'll remember this bit. He had mutton-chopped sideburns. Oh, yeah. Um, He was stood in the middle of the road, and when traffic lights changed, tragically, he was run over and killed by a taxi. Right. When his body was searched, the contents were odd, to say the least. They included $70 in old banknotes... A copper beer token worth five cents with the name of a saloon on it. A business card with the name Rudolph Fence. And it showed his address as being on Fifth Avenue. And a letter dated June 1876 with the same address as his business card. Okay. God, I've never heard of this. This is, this is remarkable. It is remarkable, right? None of these items, even the 1876 letter, looked aged. So they looked, they all looked brand new. Right. An NYPD investigator called Captain Rim, after painstaking investigation, found a Rudolph Fence Jr. in a 1939 phone book. Captain Rim discovered that this man had died five years previously and it was in his late 60s. However, his widow was still alive and he went to interview her. She told him a story about her late husband's father, who was called Rudolf Fence. Her husband's father had gone missing in 1876 when he was just 29 years old. He left the house for an evening walk and never came back. When the police officer checked missing person records from 1876, he found a description of Rudolf Fence that matched the one that was of the dead man who was found in Times Square almost 80 years after. Um, So this guy, Fence, disappeared mysteriously in 1876. And this guy that looks exactly like him with all these letters and all these bits turns up in 1950, Times Square, and gets killed. Is this a case of fact or fiction? Well, an investigator named Chris, Chris Ubeck decided to dig deeper into the story about 20 years ago. Chris started with the NYPD and other authorities in New York and he searched all the records but could find no evidence of this event. He did, however, trace the story to an article in 1972 in the Journal of Borderland Research. This was a journal that looked into UFO sightings and other paranormal phenomena. I'd not heard of that. Have you heard of the Journal of Borderland? No, no. In this article, it referenced that the story originally came from a report from 1953 in an American magazine called Collier's. After the investigator, Chris Albick, published his findings, he was then mysteriously contacted by a Reverend George Murphy, who said that he had heard of the story before and read it in a different issue of Collier's magazine. When the Reverend had read it in Collier's, it was part of a fictional story called I'm Scared, which was written by sci-fi author Jack Finney in September 1951. 
So Finney, uh, the writer, sci-fi writer, is most famous for writing The Body Snatchers. Oh, which yeah. Is an, uh, which is an amazing story. <clears throat> so Jack Finney's fictional work follows the story of detective... Can you guess the name of the detective? Detective Captain Rim. Ah... Uh who was investigating time travel stories, and his last case being that of a man called Rudolf Fentz. The story itself is written in the style that could easily be mistaken for a factual account rather than fiction. I have got a screenshot of the original story, which I will put in the photo album that will accompany this episode. So if you go to Facebook at TQM Podcast, you can have a look at it. So the Fence teleportation case looks likely to be a fictional piece of work relating to time travel and teleportation that's either been deliberately or inadvertently passed off as fact, right? Mm, mm. Yeah. Well, there is a small possibility it could be the other way around. A researcher from the Berlin News Archives claimed that he found a news article published in April 1951 that's six months before the fictional story was published, describing the Rudolf Fence incident in detail. This has fueled speculation that sci-fi author Jack Finney had used the true story as inspiration for his fictional work. What does he base that on? Well, I guess his argument is this guy found this news article that detailed the story six months before the fictional story was published. Oh, I see what you mean. Right, right. <clears throat> so so the implication being that somehow it's influenced the writer of this short story who's read it and gone, oh, I should write a story about that and I can do this. I mean, what it doesn't account for is it's still possible it was based on a fiction st- fictional story that, you know, the author could have told somebody about it or somebody could have he still could have written the story right it could have been read by people proofread an editor who's told a journalist about it and it's kind of leaked out that way do you know what i mean it doesn't categorically prove that this sci-fi writer had used it as inspiration this true story is inspiration for his thing uh there is also the the guy who claims that he found it in the Berlin News Archive, as as far as I can tell. Uh, and I think there are links online that purport to show this Berlin News article, but none of those links seem to work. So I, I've not been able to found, find definitive proof that this news article actually exists. And then I think even if it does exist, you've got to take into account multiple sources. I mean... Yeah, I agree. National Enquirer articles are going to appear in a a, a news repository somewhere, but I'm yeah. pretty sure Elvis isn't on the moon. So you got to. Are you saying you saying Elvis isn't on the moon? Well, I mean, from what I've found out, <laughs> yeah, from your digging, from, I've done some cursory looks. <laughs> I don't. I'm going to make is. the joke. I'm all shook up now, Ben. <laughs> oh, God, I know I've made it before. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, um, so uh, that's yeah. that is really interesting, and um, you know that that sort of fact or fiction um, appearing in a news source. It reminds me of that Thunderbird story we spoke about a while back. I yeah. love that kind of. It appears once somewhere, but nobody can quite find the article, and yeah. then people gotta go. Well, was it fiction? Yeah. Well, the other thing about this story is 
it seems too perfect. Do you know what I mean? If you were going to construct yes. it as a work of fiction, you would write it that way. It's like, you know, it's like that bit where in a movie where they go, we've got to tie up all the loose ends. All the loose ends are tied up in this story, which does make me a little bit suspicious. Yeah, and it's very rare that you would put, you know, all the contents of his pockets necessarily into a news article. That if you did, even though if he was knocked over by a car, somebody would have saved all of those artefacts and put them somewhere. Yeah, I love the fact a, a beer costs five cents. That's pretty exciting, right? Well, weather spoons. <laughs> yeah, true, true. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about another famous case of teleportation, this time from Argentina. Uh, you may know this one, Ben. It's known as the Vidal case. I don't know this one, no. Oh. Now, not only did this case spark multiple other reports of teleportation stories, but it's also been cited as a catalyst for the Argentinian UFO wave in the late 60s. Hmm. UFOlogist Dr. Oscar A. Gilandes details the event detailed the events in Flying Saucer Review in September edition 1968. I'm going to quote for from his article in Flying Saucer Review. Um, we do this, Ben, don't we? There are some names that I'm going to get wrong. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, at some point we're just going to have to do a, a, an episode which is consi- totally focused on the UK. Yeah, uh, and we'll like, be able to get them right. But yes, okay. John Smith went yes. to like, that. Would that would be my dream? We do it to ourselves. So uh, apologies for uh, any South Americans listening for my terrible pronunciation of both names and places in this article. So this was written by Dr. Oscar A. Gilandes for the Flying Saucer Review uh, in the September edition in 1968. He wrote, In early May 1968, a well-known Buenos Aires attorney, Dr. Geraldo Vidal, decided to attend a family get-together with his wife to be held in the city of Chascomus, which is less than 120 kilometres distance from Buenos Aires and to the south. They left the gathering shortly before midnight and decided to drive to Maipu, a community some 150 kilometres south of Chescomus, as they have friends and relatives there. Driving along the National Highway number 2, they had in front of them another car containing another couple that also had relatives in that same area. The other family, whose name is unknown, reached Maipu, without incident, but this was not the case for the Vidals, whose delay became a cause of concern for those who awaited them. 48 hours after the Vidals disappeared at the home of Rapalini family in Maipau, a call came in from the Argentinian consulate in Mexico City, which is 6,400 kilometres away as the bird flies. In this phone call, Dr Geraldo Vidal told his friends that they were well and gave them the exact time he would be arriving back in Argentina at the international airport in the capital of River Plate. The Vidals arrived at the airport on time and were greeted by friends and relatives. Mrs Vidal was taken directly from the airport to a private clinic since she was in a state of nervous shock. Dr Vidal told his relatives of the strange events that had befallen them. He said that when they were in the outskirts of Chascumas on the evening of their disappearance, a dense fog materialised suddenly before them, and from that moment on they were unable to account for what happened to them during the next 48 hours. 
When they regained awareness of their surroundings, it was daytime and their car, with both of them inside, was parked along an unknown road. They had no physical injuries, but both complained of a pain in the nape of the neck and had the sensation of having slept many hours. Stunned, they stepped out of the vehicle and noticed that the paint on the chassis appeared to have suffered the effects of blowtorching. The engine, however, worked perfectly. Putting the car in gear, they drove along the unknown road, crossing a landscape that was utterly unfamiliar. They asked several persons they found along the way and all of them told them the same thing. They were in Mexico. Mr and Mrs Vidal's watches had stopped, but using a calendar, they ascertained that they'd gone from Argentina. They had been gone from Argentina for 48 hours. I'm not sure how you discern that from using a calendar, but that's what the article says. Okay. In due time, they reached Mexico City, where they asked for the Argentinian consulate. They retold their incredible adventure uh, there, and the consul allowed them to make a phone call to a notary called Martin Rapolini. Next... The consul, next, the consul, Rafael Lopez Pellegrini, asked them to remain completely silent about the case in order to allow the authorities to investigate. Dr Vidal's car, a Peugeot 403, was shipped to the United States for research and was replaced with the exact make and model paid for by the US authorities. They could have at least got him a Porsche or a Lamborghini, couldn't they, considering <laughs> what he'd been through? ERF, another Peugeot 403. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> now, as you can imagine, Ben, this incident was widely written about in the press at the time and has become the stuff of legend as either an example of teleportation or alien abduction or both. Um, there were, uh, I think, as this story's gone on, the Vidals, it's been assumed it wasn't actually their real name, the people who were involved in this incident, and their name had been changed. But one, a relative of theirs did appear on Argentinian TV talking about the case and being interviewed uh, and confirming what happened. So, I mean, it's an interesting case. They say they're just driving down, the fog comes. 48 hours later, for no reason, they're in Mexico City in the very same car that they were in. This um, this fog is something that comes up again and again when you look into accounts of uh, sort of like Bermuda Triangle type accounts. Yeah, uh, you you get these um, people say so. There's a really famous encounter. I can't remember the name at the moment, but he's flying his aircraft and then he sees these clouds which don't look like normal clouds. Then he gets enveloped in them and then he describes them being tunnel shaped. And then coming out somewhere completely different. And there yeah. is another author who claims that, um, and I I encountered this a couple of years ago. Again, can't remember the name of the author, but they claim that um, time storms are a natural phenomena. Now, yeah. I I don't I don't know about whether they included moving location um, phenomena, but certainly. There is this idea that uh, there's a certain sort of, I guess you'd call it weather pattern, but a certain sort of formation, which is mist or cloud-like, which causes time to shift. But right. um, location shifting is that's a that's a sort of another level. Well, it's another level for two reasons on this one because not only were they two people transported from Argentina to Mexico City, they they were in their car, so <laughs> their car and them 
were teleported if you believe the story and and this story you know has has raged for years and years and years well over 30 years after the event took place however doubt has been cast on the validity of the Vidal story well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to do this to you, Ben. I was I was going to say, did anyone make any money out of this? Because that's the yeah. Well, yeah, we often say that, don't we? Follow mm. the money, follow the motivation. Mm. Well, in 2003, an Argentinian journalist called Alexandro Agostinelli looked into the story and claimed it was a hoax created to promote an Argentinian sci-fi movie. <laughs> there we go. Alexandro stated that he had interviewed filmmaker. Anibal Usa in 1996, who confessed he invented the story with friends in order to promote their film, Shay Ovni. Now, I'm not sure if this... So it's Shay, C-H-E, new word, but all in caps, O-V-N-I. Mm-hmm. Let's call it Shay Ovni. Mm-hmm. Don't know why the second bit's in caps. Now, this movie had a very similar storyline to the Vidal incident. Filmmaker Usa said the fact the Vidal case gained so much attention co- so quickly was one of the reasons he kept quiet. I think it was also to do with the fact that when the film was released, it bombed. <laughs> it was terrible, apparently. It's become a cult classic since maybe connected with this, but mm, mm. It, it, it didn't do well. But he said it, it was almost a stunt that got away from him and it was on, you know, on national tv and in the press he just kept quiet basically he said so many people approached me to say that they'd known the vidals that i began to have doubts was it more what what is more the confusion was such that i began to think that our story coincided with something that really happened so he almost convinced himself that he hadn't put the rumor out there that somehow it was true and he just got completely confused about it yeah, well, you, sometimes to be that convincing, you sort of need to believe it yourself, don't you? Although yeah, and that is quite a big thing. Did did we time travel and location <laughs> travel in that car, or did I make it up? I always forget. Did I make it up? <laughs> well, I guess sceptics would say he would say that, right? He would yeah. say he made it up. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, of course, yeah. Well, uh, the other thing was I said there was a relative, a cousin of the Vidals who appeared on national television and stuff, when this investigator dug deeper, turns out that that was a friend of the film director who'd also had a guest appearance in the movie. So if if you'd put it together, you'd be able to find it out. So, yeah, two which look like good stories, but not examples of time travel. We like to go back, don't we? We like to look at kind of early examples of this. Yes, yes. Well, before anyone podcast. had a film to promote, although yeah, they probably exactly. had something else to promote. But um, yeah, are there, are there some early examples? Well, I've found one that dates back hundreds of years. This is the story of Gil Perez. I love that name. easy to say Um, Gil Perez this story dates back to the 16th century so Perez was serving as a Spanish soldier and palace guard at the governor's palace in Manila he was just a regular soldier until the morning of October 24th 1593 when something strange happened tired due to lack of sleep and the warm weather Perez decided to take a short nap and leaned up against the palace wall. 
When he opened his eyes, he was stunned to find himself in an unknown location. Confused, he asked a man where he was and was told, Mexico City. (laughs) Again. (laughs) What is it with Mexico City? I know, it's a hotspot for teleportation. When he asked the date, he was told it was the evening of October 24th. This was one day after Perez had been in Manila, over 14,000 kilometres or 8,800 miles away across the Pacific Ocean. When it was explained to him that he was in Mexico City, he refused to believe that this was true. Perez was questioned extensively by the Holy Tribunal of the Inquisition and he told authorities he had travelled from Manila to Mexico, I quote, in less time than it takes a cock to crow. He revealed that he knew he was no longer in Manila and that the night before he also knew for a fact that the Governor-General of the Philippines had been assassinated. Which I think is quite important because, you know, this is, what, the 1600s, so there's no internet, there's no way if that had happened the night before in Manila that information could have reached Mexico City, right? But he, that was his proof. Look, I was there yesterday... And the day before, the governor was killed. Check it out. That was his defence. Well, right, right. The members of the Spanish Inquisition did not believe his story, hardly surprising, and had him imprisoned for desertion. So they basically thought he deserted his post, jumped on a ship, got to Mexico and had been caught out. So I guess that's your follow the money bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> quite, a, quite a leap, though, right? Yeah. <sighs> It is quite a leap. I was just trying to digest that. I mean, that seems that seems a fanciful but also readily verifiable set of circumstances. Well, it's funny you say that. For two months, Perez was locked up in a jail in Mexico City until a Manila merchant ship arrived from the Philippines. The crew then shared the news about the governor's assassination, which had happened just as Perez had said. <laughs> Wow. And that was two months earlier. So it took two months for the ship to get there. But when it arrived, it said, you'll never believe it. The governor of the Philippines has been assassinated two months ago. Even stranger, one of the passengers on the ship recognised Perez and swore that he had seen the soldier in the Philippines marching at the palace garrison on October the 23rd, which was the day before he suddenly appeared in Mexico City. Okay. This bit's great. And so, the Holy Tribunal of the Inquisition in Mexico had no other choice to do but to accept Perez's story, releasing him from jail, and they sent him back to the Philippines. Goodness. So that this is a case of legally approved... Teleportation. Teleportation. And is there any account of what he said... It, he went through when he teleported. I mean, did he see himself moving? Did he describe the sensation? No, no nothing like that. Just, just, just as it is the story. Is the I, re- I wonder if when he got released and back on the boat, whether he just said, oh, got away with that one. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because all of those, I mean, seeing, I don't, I don't think you can sort of say that... Um, an eyewitness saying they saw him marching, I don't think that's very reliable. I mean, the, the amount of time travel, the fact they'd be in a uniform, yeah, I don't know, yeah. that seems a bit... Could be a mate of his. Exactly. Helping could, him out, right? 
it, yeah, it could be anything. But the knowledge of the governor being assassinated, the only explanation that I can think of... Does it make sense? Well, no, it doesn't make sense. I was going to say that he's in on the plot and oh, knows what, it's going to happen. Yeah, but then or, that wouldn't explain or, how he got or, there so fast. Yeah, or the other one I thought of, I, I don't know the historical context, but, you know, if the governor was incredibly unpopular, maybe there'd been assassination attempts on his life before, you know, and he was exaggerating it and saying, no, he has been assassinated. That is a possibility. But it is an intriguing is. story. It's great. And so it's, it remains a mystery, does it? Remains a mystery. Uh, we have said on the podcast before, I love those old stories, but, you know, it's hard, isn't it, to kind of know, is this fiction? Is it something that's almost become mm. leg- urban legend? Um, you know, so there, there's all that angle to it. So I, I did think to myself... I haven't really conclusively found evidence of teleportation to see whether it's possible or indeed has happened. Yeah, yeah. Until, Ben, quantum mechanics came to the rescue. Not us, oh, right. the real thing. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, the, it wasn't us, it was <laughs> real quantum mechanics. Because not only is teleportation theoretically possible... It's already happened. Oh, go on then. So I started delving into the realm of quantum entanglement. And Ben, as well we know, it's often hard to distill the science into something that's followable on this podcast format. (laughs) Or even for us, to be honest. Yes. But then I found this great article by Kevin Bonser and Robert Lamb on HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, Their article is called How Teleportation Will Work. I do have multiple sources confirming the next bit, but their writing was so good, I'm going to take it pretty much verbatim. I've edited it down, but you'll you'll, um, appreciate this. Sometimes you come across these things and you're writing up the topic and you're going, I can't write it any better (laughs) or even close to how they've written it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So there are a few bendy science bits in there, which uh, we'll we'll see, but I, it's really written well. They write, so this is Kevin Bonser and Robert Lamb in HowStuffWorks.com. They say, Sick of those frenzy morning school drop-offs? Longing for a morning commute free of highway road rage and public transit bum stink? Not a phrase I would have used, but that's what they say. Public transit bum stink. Yeah, I that, didn't know that was a thing, but apparently it is. No, that was uh, that was the B-52's B-side, I think, to Love Shack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they say, lucky for you, science is working on an answer. And it might be just as simple as scanning your body down to a subatomic level, annihilating all your favourite parts at point A, and then sending all your scan data to point B, where a computer builds you back up from nothing in a fraction of a second. Uh, yeah, but then presumably the next bit is, and then it deletes the original. You're ahead of me, yeah. They say, sure, it kind of amounts to chucking your ki- kid in a sub-atom- subatomic wood chipper every morning, <laughs> but just think of the time you'll save. <laughs> um, it's called teleportation, and you probably know it best from the likes of Star Trek and The Fly, which we've already discussed. Yeah. If realised for humans, this amazing technology would make it possible to travel vast distances without physically crossing the space between. 
Global teleportation will become instantaneous. Interplanetary travel will literally become one small step for man. If you're doubtful, consider for a moment that teleportation hasn't been strictly science fiction since 1993. That year, the concept moved from the realm of impossible fancy to theoretical reality. Physicist Charles Bennett and the team of IBM researchers confirmed that quantum teleportation was possible. And you were ahead of me, Ben. But only if the original object being teleported was destroyed. Yeah, and then is it really teleportation or is it... It it just seems to me to be remote cloning because it's only teleportation because the initial object ceases to be there and then is replicated wherever it's supposed to be. But that is like... It just seems like... What you're saying is, well, there can't be two of you, so you have to kill the original one. Yeah. And Well, uh, they say the act of scanning disrupts the original such that the copy becomes the only surviving original. That That is exactly how almost the people who did the special effects in the original Star Trek saw it, isn't it? Because you yeah. see the the original like get scanned and then sort of turn into fuzziness yeah. and blink out of existence and then the the new yeah the the person reappears on on the deck sort of well it, it it's even yeah. better than that on star trek because when i'm going to get into a bit in a minute which is is slightly confusing but it, it does almost tie into that concept i know there were episodes in star trek where we've lost him is he still is there still a copy on the, you know, within the computer database so we can bring uh, them back? Hmm. And that is almost how it works, which I'll get onto. But this revelation from 1993 was announced by Bennett uh, uh, at an annual general meeting of the American Physical Society in March 1993 and was followed up by a report on his findings in March 29, 1993, in a kind of peer-reviewed paper. Since that time, experiments using photons have proven that quantum teleportation is, in fact, possible. So back in 93, it was theoretical. They've done it. The work continues today as researchers combine elements of telecommunications, transportation and quantum physics in astounding ways. Teleportation experiments cause quite the mess in science fiction, producing inside-out baboons, dune-spliced monsters and dematerialised madmen. In reality, however, the experiments are thus far abomination-free and overall quite promising. In 1998, physicists at the California Institute of Technology... Caltech, along with two European groups, made IBM's teleportation theory a reality by successfully teleporting a photon, particle of light that carry, the particle of energy that carries light. The Caltech team read the atomic structure of the photon and sent this information across 3.28 feet. I guess that's about a metre. Uh, they sent it down coaxial cable and created a replica of the photon on the other side. As predicted, the original photon no longer existed once the replica appeared. In order to carry out the experiment, the Caltech group had to skirt something called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. Good good quantum joke coming up. As any boxed quantum state feline will tell you, this principle (laughs) states, states that you cannot simultaneously know the location and the momentum of a particle. It is also the main barrier for teleportation of objects larger than a photon. 
But if you can't know the position of a particle, then how can you engage in a bit of quantum teleportation? In order to teleport a photon without violating the Heisenberg principle, the Caltech physicists use a phenomenon known as entanglement, which we have talked about yeah. quantum entanglement before. In entanglement, it's where it gets a bit confused, but I, I was thinking about what you said about Star Trek and the bit that's on the computer. And so this is how I think this works and see if you agree. you got Captain Kirk, right? Mm-hmm. He's on the plate. He gets smushed down or whatever you do. He's then in a computer. So you've got the original, you've got the one in the computer and the one down on the alien planet below. Mm. They're all working together to recreate him on the alien planet and then his one can then disappear Mm. from the teleportation pad. So they said three photons are needed to achieve uh, quantum teleportation. Photon A, the photon that is being teleported. Photon B, the transportation photon. So I think in that analogy is the computer bit, right? Mm. Uh, Photon C, the photon that is entangled with photon B. Maybe that's the other way around. If researchers, this could be another quantum joke, if researchers try to look too closely at photon A without entanglement, they bump it and therefore change it. Both entangle photons B and C. Researchers can extract information about photon A and the remaining information would pass on to B by way of entanglement and then on to photon C. So that does feel a bit like the way I was describing it uh, on Star Trek, right? Yes. So photon A is Captain Kirk standing on the platform. Photon... B in this example is him on the alien planet and it's all made possible by photon C which then sits in the computer in the middle yes that's how I understood it that makes a lot of sense but that like the logical conclusion to that then if we're going to do this with humans is that um, we're assuming that we can somehow capture memories and cognitive processes yeah. Just by scanning particles. And at some point, we're also saying that a consciousness is existing inside an algorithm on a computer, which is then going to recreate the human. Yeah. That to me seems like a big leap through stuff that we have literally no idea about. Yeah. And also, how do you test that? <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't really test it until you try it, can you? No. I mean, to if he's going, if, if he has a whisper bar, then jumps on there, what needs to happen is, at the other end, does he still have a bit of whisper in his teeth? And does he remember yeah. buying the whisper bar and eating it? Because... Or if you go for the fly, does he then come out as a giant whisper bar with eyes <laughs> and a mouth? Well, exactly. And and what about all of the, the gut bacteria that live in us? As I understand yeah. it, there's about a billion bacteria that live in and around the average human you've got to recreate all of them as well and you've got to do it perfectly so that you don't accidentally get eaten by a mutated piece of bacteria and you also have to accept the fact that this is a death and recreation process and then the other thing is would you not like then go while you're at it could you just see if i've got any defects or could you just amend my dna so that i could be five years younger 
And yeah. then we're in we're in a whole world of not doing teleportation well, anymore. There's there's a whole load of ethical debates, which I think this article does get onto that. But just to follow on with the timeline, in 2002, researchers at the Australian National University successfully teleported a laser beam, and in 2006, a team at Denmark's Niels Bohr Institute teleported information stored in a laser beam into a cloud of atoms about 1.6 feet away, half a metre. It is one step further because we, for the first time, involves teleportation between light and matter. So this is what you're getting onto. Two different objects, explains team leader Dr. Judine Polzik. One is the carrier of information and the other one is the storage medium. In 2012, research at the University of Science and Technology of China made a new teleportation record. They They teleported a photon... 60.3 miles, which is 97 kilometres, from Earth to an orbiting satellite. Just two years later, European physicists were able to teleport quantum information through an ordinary optical fibre used for telecommunications. Now, that is quite amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. No no specialist kit, just an optical fibre that you normally use to telecommunications telecommunications given these advancements you can see how quantum teleportation will affect the world of quantum computing far before it helps you your morning commute so the article does go on to explain that there are some issues relating to human teleportation which we'll need to overcome (laughs) no doubt not at least of which is we'd be we need to travel faster than the speed of light uh also if your molecules are out by even a millimetre, as they arrive at their final desti- destination, it would have disastrous consequences. Uh, and it says, the definition of arrival would certainly be a point of contention. The transported individual wouldn't actually arrive anywhere. The whole process would work more like a fax machine. A duplicate of what the, of that person would emerge at the receiving end, but what would happen to the original? Yeah... That's so it the, does go on to talk about uh, the digitization of bodies details. You'd need to create the genetic clone complete with all the traveller's memories, emotions, hopes and dreams, and then the original copy would have to die. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. And then, because that, that, that's when we're talking about organic things life forms there's also but the, the the thing that i can't get away from is that there's a replication element to this so once you've learned how to to do that surely the next thing would be like replicating valuable stuff so rather than um transmitting a chunk of gold why wouldn't you just keep the gold you've got and then create more gold in which case yeah. you're almost making it worthless but I don't know. The, the the ethical concerns are are crazy in all circumstances. The the only thing that occurs to me that um doesn't have any ethical concerns is when you talk about it at this very microscopic level when you talk about individual particles and photons. If you were able to encode data into those particles and then transmit them to another computer you could have instantaneous high density data transfer possibly 
Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? That would be fun. Because that's essentially, I guess, what we're talking about. I mean, humans are just data in a way, but... Yeah, and it was just that fact that you they have done this teleportation just using a normal optical fibre. That kind of blew my mind a bit. Yeah. Yeah, that does. I, I'm pretty sure in the early days we read that the Chinese had done it as well. Yeah, that was the one I just mentioned. That was the one where they did it from the satellite. Ah, sorry, right. I was, yeah, okay, got so it. that I think that's the world record in terms of, or um, outer world record, because they did it from Earth to a satellite. Um, but yeah, I, I think that was just a single photon as far as I know. Um, right, right. But it's interesting when you kind of think about these teleportation stories i mean they seem to fall into two categories to me there are or maybe even three there are those that seem connected with time travel and i think when we did the episode way back when on time travel you end up scratching your head going if time travel will ever exist then we'd know about it because <laughs> it would have happened unless somebody's keeping it a really big secret which seems impossible to me yeah so then you're yeah. looking at this kind of the more interesting bit is could a person now or in the past have teleported from one location to another, which, again, you'd have to kind of almost include some kind of alien intervention or help in that process to make it work for me. Yeah. And... Uh, I don't know. It it is um, those those cases where it feels like there's um, been teleportation happen, whether it's through time and space or or just one or the other. It it's almost like implied that there's a natural thing going on, isn't it? That's what yeah. all of those accounts feel like. There's a natural thing. Yeah, going it's, on. there's there's not a weird laboratory that somebody's gone in and jumped into a pod it's just one minute i was there and then next minute i'm in mexico city yeah yeah and and that is um that is something that you might expect um like shaman to talk about but but doing it through astral traveling rather than um physical, physical traveling body. yeah um so i wonder whether that there is some sort of natural phenomena which is, you know, at play here, which sometimes does cause this thing to happen because it's very, very similar to the time slip stuff we were talking about. Yeah, or wormholes. It makes me think yeah. of wormholes in space, that kind of thing. I mean, I think ironically, <clears throat> this topic, you know, there is, there is very little that, I saw out there that made me go, God, that's really interesting. Probably the most interesting is the Perez story, the one from the 1600s. But ironically, from a scientific perspective, it's probably one of the topics that we are close, you know, we're within touching distance of achieving some of it. Certainly down, it made me think of the story we talk about a lot on the podcast, the Just One of Those Things story about the woman with the... Um, uh with the travel clock you know mm. we've, we've we've mentioned it a few times but she has this travel clock she can't find it she goes home 
she finds one that's kind of like her, hers but not the same and then she finds the original that made me think of teleportation because you know if you do get bits just slightly wrong it's not going to rematerialize the way it was originally but then i guess the original would have been destroyed in in this theory as it stands now but it did make me think of jots and and objects that move seems like if we can do light and we can do a mixture of kind of matter and it seems within you know reach of a few hundred years that we might be able to transport small objects mm. yeah yeah i mean the other the other way i guess of thinking about it is um nano machines so nano machines is the more physical way of doing it and there have been there has been thought about uh, because they manufacture um atomic structures out of basically whatever they've got they can manipulate at the atomic level you could give them the uh the blueprint for a bacon sandwich and in theory which isn't too far away from practice i guess they could reconstruct a a bacon sandwich but then you don't need to uh, destroy any original bacon sandwich. What you've got there is a replicator from Star Trek. Yeah, you have exactly. I, although I went a bit home with Simpson. Then I just went, oh, bacon sandwich. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped listening to you after that point. To be honest, were you thinking, can they get the ketchup right? Yeah, uh, yeah. You've got to get the ketchup mayonnaise continuum absolutely perfect or that would be disastrous you have mayonnaise on your bacon sandwiches or a mixture of ketchup and mayonnaise oh that's controversial that's like a thousand island dressing it it kind of is but it's fantastic so yeah i I do find it ironical that ironical i do find it ironic that (laughs) thanks a lot yeah that you know in some ways, it was the most frustrating in terms of finding credible stories, but actually, from a scientific perspective, it's probably the closest we've been to proof of some weird scenario going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the possibilities for practical jokes as well, if we pull this off, are huge. And I think that's what we should all focus on, is yeah. co- comedy would be improved 100%. If uh, if we could do, do this time traveling around, because you could uh, you could pop up in unexpected places, like tweak someone's nose and then just teleport out of there, and uh, it would be I'll very t- funny. I tell you, the other one is making me think of <clears throat> pass the parcel at children's parties would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's time for teleport the parcel. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that would keep them busy for a while. Yeah. Well, that's. That uh, is really super fascinating. Uh, I think now I've I've never really given it much thought, um, particularly never given any thought to the um, beam me up Scotty stuff. But now I think about it, I definitely don't want to be teleported because it does feel like you're killed and then rebuilt. Uh, yeah. It's like a terrible RoboCop. Yeah, it, it is. And uh, also I've now got this vision of you coming back as a giant chocolate bar because <laughs> of that bit of chocolate in your teeth or a bacon sandwich oh no that's wrong <laughs> what if you have both Ooh. that's a thing you've eaten a bacon yeah. sandwich and a whisper 
Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we should probably end, don't you think? I think so, yes. <laughs> we'll see you uh, next week for more quantum mechanics craziness. All right, see you then. Take care. Bye. Bye. the quantum mechanics.